0: Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. All right. Welcome back to Killer Queens. We have got a very exciting show today. Yay. We have a special guest. Uh, We've got Margo from Military Murder Podcast. Hey, Margo. Hey, ladies. How's it going? So good. We're so excited. Yeah, so glad to have you.
1: I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for setting all of this up. And I know we had a little bit of technical difficulties, but I'm so excited to be recording with you ladies.
0: Yeah, we finally got it to work. So. But it wouldn't be us if we didn't have technical difficulties so. every single time, literally.
1: Facts. Oh my gosh.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the case that we have today is there's like, a touch on military, so that'll be good to get some of your input on that. But it is a serial killer case, and I feel like he's not super well known. Like I've never heard of him. Yeah. Me either. Okay. I've heard of him before. Oh, okay. Well, you just know everything, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I just know everything. That's yeah. I think he was in like maybe the serial killer book I had, or oh, pro- yeah, okay, yeah, because they they listed a bunch, but. Anyway, I didn't know this much about the case, that's for sure. So before we jump in, as always, just to let you guys know, we've got a Patreon. If you want ad-free episodes, if you want extra episodes, we do three a week. Go check it out. Super fun in there. And um, I guess that's all the biz. Yeah, I think that's good. That's the least amount of talking that we've done before an episode <laughs> ever. So <laughs> I'm proud of it. Like finally, you yeah. got your shit together. I know. <laughs> okay. So um we are gonna begin this case on Tuesday, September first, nineteen ninety-eight. Right here. Yes. At around 8:30 a.m. in Poughkeepsie, New York, which is like 85 miles north of New York City. Do you know what I think about every time I hear the name Poughkeepsie Charlotte? Yeah, it's from Texas City. when She, she Poughkeepsied p- in <laughs> her <laughs> pants. Yeah. That's all I could think of too. I was That's like, awesome. she Poughkeepsied in her pants. <laughs> yep. A young woman named Christine Sala was in a fight for her life. She'd come to the home at 99 Fulton Avenue for sex. Christine was a sex worker and had done this numerous times with other men and many times with this specific man, and she hadn't had problems with him before. But this time, the ginormous man, he was 6'4 and between 350 and 400 pounds that she'd come home with, wanted more than sex. So they get into an argument about money. He didn't want to pay her. And then he started choking her. And somehow she was able to break free. And she's a small woman. That's miraculous that she was able to do that. I know. And Mm -hmm. then she even convinced him to take her to the gas station to get cigarettes, which is absolutely incredible. Like, I don't know specifically what she said, but whatever she said calmed him down enough and I guess made him believe that she wasn't going to report him or contact authorities like because otherwise if you let
1: her go Mm -hmm. or take her to the store yeah yeah take her to a public place you kind of have to wonder what happened in the past in that relationship because I guess they have they had done this before together so maybe there was like a different incident where maybe he did something that wasn't as serious so he was just like she's going to come back she's not going to run Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Well, and I mean, you got to think too, like what they're doing the the sexual acts that they're engaging in, sex for money, it's not legal, right. so I mean, maybe that was the argument like, look, how could I go to the police? They're gonna get me for prostitution anyway, so it's yeah,
1: like, I didn't even think about that, yeah, yeah,
0: so they drive to a nearby gas station, and the whole time Christine is just trying to hold it together, and she's trying to pretend like. I'm calm, cool, collected, everything's fine. She went inside the gas station and she told a man, I think it was somebody that was working there, that she'd just been attacked. And so the man goes outside and there were officers there that he knew and they had just so happened to have pulled up at that exact moment to get Christine some help. So this is City of Poughkeepsie Detective Skip Manane and town of Poughkeepsie, Detective Bob McCready. They had pulled up to the station in their unmarked police car to start handing out flyers looking for a missing woman, Katina Newmaster, or get some information about her disappearance. The man that Christine had confided in told the detectives what she said about being assaulted. And he also told the detectives that she was walking away because she initially didn't want to report the attack to police because she feared prosecution, and she didn't want to get in trouble herself. While Manane was a little frustrated that he was being taken away from his probable serial killer investigation involving missing woman Katina Newmaster for another assault on a sex worker, the detectives caught up with the woman and they were able to convince her to come into the police station. And she filed a report stating that Kendall Francois had been the man to attack her. The detectives bring him in for an interview, and that's actually exactly what they needed. Like, this whole situation where they come upon Christine and this attack happened by chance, but the detectives were already familiar with Kendall and they wanted to speak with him. They'd been hearing his name come up time and time again in their serial killer investigation. Francois was familiar with this process as he'd been here many times for assaulting sex workers, but this time he gave up and ended up asking to see pictures of the missing women and requested to talk to the chief prosecutor of the missing women and I'll tell you what happened. So prosecutor Margie Smith comes in. Francois would spend hours detailing what he knew about Katina Newmaster and other missing women they were looking for. It was reported that when Smith left the interrogation room, she collapsed into the arms of a police officer and began crying. Francois had given her a full confession to the murders of eight women. It is so crazy to me that that police officer was like, God damn it. Now we have to to deal with this real quick. And he's like, oh, actually, that's exactly what. Yay, we did it.
1: Yep. And they got a full confession. (laughs) That was awesome.
0: I know, like, in what
1: world does that happen?
0: That's crazy. I know, because it's like, he spent all this time being like, nope, 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 nope. And yeah. then he's like, okay, fine, you got me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like on Austin Powers, the second one, Will Ferrell's character, where he has to be asked three times. Like, oh, the first yeah. two, he's like, nope, nope, nope. And then the second, or the third time, he's like, oh, damn it, He asked me three times. Okay, now <laughs> I'll say times. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So let's get into who Kendall Francois was. Kendall Francois was born on July 26, 1971 to Paulette and McKinley Francois in Poughkeepsie. Kendall was the second of four kids and the only boy. His older sister was Raquel, and his younger sisters were Aubrey and Kirsten. When Kendall was about four years old, his parents bought the green colonial home at 99 Fulton Avenue in a middle-class neighborhood in Poughkeepsie for $11,500. That is a steal. Yeah, say so. (laughs) Kendall and his sisters, specifically Kirsten, lived most of their lives in this house and it would be the scene of his terrifying extracurricular activities. Kendall had a rough time in school being bullied for his height and weight. He was very tall, which was previously mentioned. He was 6'4 and 250 pounds as a 14-year-old. As a 14-year-old. Good. God. That is insane. When I read that, I was like, football player. Yeah. Oh, totally. Exactly. He needs to play football. Yeah. Right. I wonder how many times he was mistaken as like the teacher or something because that's a big <laughs> boy. Yeah, that's true. And he was a, obese even as a child. He was quiet and pretty much kept to himself because of this. Middle school was just as terrible as it is for most kids. But once he got to high school, things were slightly better when he got into sports and was put on the varsity teams for football and wrestling as a freshman. Sports helped him find a place where he could kind of like fit in. In 1989, he graduated from Arlington High School, and the next year, he joined the Army. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I (laughs) made a note that this is the, we always say this, like, you know, the McDonald triad for, like, serial killers, the three. We always say, like, the Army and head trauma are, like, the fifth, the fourth and fifth parts of the (laughs) McDonald triad, because it's like, (laughs) it seems like it always is part of it.
1: And you wouldn't be wrong. I I tend to agree. Yeah.
0: It's amazing. I mean, for you to have built an entire show on just military
1: murders mm-hmm. is pretty pretty telling, I guess, right? And there's so many serial killers with a background in the military who has some, who yeah. has served or some point like that, you know? It's it's terrifying.
0: It is. Yeah, I'd be interested to learn like the actual statistic, like how many serial killers did serve, but I wonder if part of it is you know a lot of them are they get super bored easily they have a hard time holding down a job because they can't like they're the focus or kind yeah, of, they of or something, yeah they get and all that and um, I wonder if it's like they go into the military trying to i don't know find something that they can do or get some structure or whatever I was gonna say it seems like it's this it this innate need for structure and authority, but then they buck it in the same Mm -hmm. breath. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: No, I agree. And then the thing is that a lot of these serial killers do really well in the military, like you said. And then they kind of are like, okay, my four years, five years, six years is up. And then they get out and that's when they're like twiddling their thumbs trying to figure out what to do. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of them have these ideas of wanting to kill people at a young age. And then they're like, oh, I'm going to join the military to kill people. Or, you know, at least that's what some of them think, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, Yeah, kind of
0: the wrong reason (laughs) uh, to join the military. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. So Kendall went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, for basic training and then was shipped off to Honolulu, Hawaii. However, in 1992 or 94, Francois was discharged from the Army for his weight. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, So, oh, and thank you to Sloan for researching this case and writing the script. She put in, I guess something from, I don't know, like a website or something, but it says chapter 18, failure to meet body fat standards, states that if one of three criteria are met, a soldier can be discharged because of their weight. Mm-hmm. So I just didn't realize that was even a thing.
1: Yeah. So basically it's uh so in the military you have to take a fitness, a physical fitness test. So each branch has their own version of the test, but they also have a f- weight standards. So depending on your height, there's like a window that you can be in between that. So if you're like five foot two, um, you can't be over like a hundred, I'm just making this number up, like over 150 pounds, or they put you on a weight management program and they give you so much time to kind of lose the weight, or you can basically be discharged for failure to meet fitness standards. So that's all kind of combined, uh, which yeah. is which is interesting because he is really tall, but his, I mean, probably his waist is a little large, um, but... Yeah, he was a big boy to begin with. Well,
0: 350 to 400 pounds. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. he was a big boy. I'm surprised he even got in. But maybe he just, once he got in and he went to boot camp, he lost a lot of weight. And then when he went to his permanent duty station, he just kind of started to gain it all back.
0: Hmm. Yeah, possibly. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So after being discharged, Francois returned to 99 Fulton Avenue and he never left. He enrolled at Dutchess County Community College and began pursuing a degree in liberal arts. And he took classes on and off until 1998. Francois held several jobs, but none for very long. And for about a year, which was between 96 and 97, he worked at Arlington Middle School, which is the same middle school where he was bullied, as a janitor before being changed to the school monitor. And. Apparently, this is literally a hall monitor who also monitors detention. <laughs> yeah, like that's literally a job that they pay somebody to do. Like Sloan's a teacher and she's like, we monitor the halls. Like, I've mm-hmm. never seen that in any school that I've been to. And a super young Tory that loved a tattletale on everyone would have killed for that job for free. Oh, sure. <laughs> done it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's
2: and awesome. that's like a
0: person who has too much power. 100 uh, <laughs> percent. So Francois did not make any friends at this job. Uh, teachers complained that he was inappropriate with female students. This mm. is middle school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They said that he would touch their hair and told them jokes about sex. Why uh, did they uh-uh. not fire him? Exactly. Uh-uh. I, that's unacceptable. I uh-uh. don't even just the hair touching all by itself is Yeah, you should not be touching young girls. No.
1: Yeah. It's so weird. Can you imagine the creepy six foot four, 350 pound janitor touching your hair? That's so... Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. no, I don't like it.
0: The children didn't seem to take him seriously anyway and called him Stinky as a nickname because along with being generally a gigantic dude, Francois didn't have great... No, that's not even fair. Uh, He didn't have any hygiene and tended to smell bad. Yeah, no hygiene at all. Francois was still living at home with his parents and his little sister Kirsten, who all of the above denied knowing anything about the murders in October of 1996 when he began his murders.
1: And we're going to learn why he was smelly right (laughs) here in the next section. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So now we're going to talk about when he basically begins his murder streak. So... Uh, This is when Francois or Kendall took 30-year-old sex worker Wendy Myers back to his house, which also used to be his parents' house and he shared it with his sister who was in college. So Wendy was his type. She was a white woman with short, dark hair, hazel eyes, and a pretty slim figure. Kendall had employed Myers multiple times in the past as a sex worker, and twice she had actually left with his money without giving him sex. And the one time that she did complete the sex acts, she ended up giving him HIV. So talk about being
0: pissed. Uh, So, gosh. That's a a whoopsie. Yeah. Yikes. Mm -hmm. But I wonder why he continued to use her if twice she left with the money and didn't do the... Well, OK, but service. you got to mm. wonder, though, and I don't want to get too graphic or vivid or whatever, but some people enjoy like we don't know the details of what was going on in there. Maybe he was into like being humiliated. Maybe he was into whatever, like you can have a sexual gratification mm, yeah. without the act
1: of sex. That's true. Yeah and maybe maybe he just maybe it was more like a chase for him, you know? Whereas like mm-hmm. most sex workers are like, okay, give me the money, we have sex and that's it. She was more maybe like he was trying to chase after her. I mean, and she does end up being his first victim, so who knows what caused him to snap.
2: Right. Yeah, very yeah. true.
1: So on October 24th, 1996, Francois had had enough. He brought her back to his house where they had sex and Kendall Same thing as Francois, I keep switching them up. Um, But he was angry and he took over. He strangled her and broke her hyoid bone. He said that she fought hard and quote, wouldn't die, end quote. When Myers finally stopped fighting and flailing, she still wasn't dead. So Kendall took her to his bathroom, dropped her face down in the tub And turned on the water, holding her under there until she finally drowned. Then, crazy, isn't that crazy? Then, Kendall carried her body to the attic. Attic, what? That's crazy. I wonder what his plan was for her. But Wendy eventually was reported missing two days later by her boyfriend. A month later, on November 29th, 1996. While everyone else was out shopping for Black Friday, recovering from their food comas from Thanksgiving, Kendall brought home another woman, 29-year-old Gina Barone. Gina had been a good but very shy girl until she was about 15 years old when she fell in with the wrong crowd. She became impossible for her mother to handle and her mother just kind of gave up. She began doing drugs and selling herself for money. Well, she did this for many years, almost 10 years. And when she was 26 years old, she gave birth to a baby girl who she named Nicole. But Gina couldn't take care of Nicole. So Gina's mother, thankfully, stepped in as a primary caretaker for the child. One night, Gina and her boyfriend, Richie, got into a fight. And I I remember watching the documentary on this. And it was like three o'clock in the morning. They got into a fight Mm -hmm. in the street. And Gina got out of the car and she basically was like, you know what, just leave. And so she just started walking the streets and he was like, all right, fine. And then Gina just kept on walking. But when he came back for her, she was gone. It turns out that Gina had bumped into Francois and she had gone with him. She had sex with him in his car in a parking lot. But Francois said that she was in a pretty bad mood, which we can all imagine because she had just gotten into a fight with her boyfriend three o'clock in the morning. She tells him to leave and he just leaves. She probably didn't mean it. She's probably like, leave, but don't leave, you know? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. She's (laughs) like, I can't believe he left. Right. (laughs) What a jerk. (laughs) Yeah. And so she's in a bad mood, right? So she's having sex with him and she's a pretty tiny girl. He's 350 pounds Or more. And they're having sex in a car. So I can imagine it's not very comfortable. And so she's complaining about how heavy he is. And that basically she's like, you're taking too long to finish, dude. And Kendall got super annoyed with her. And he just began to strangle her until she finally was quiet. And apparently he did it so that he could finish. So, So disgusting. So gross. So... After he strangled her for a little bit, it didn't kill her. So when she finally came to, he strangled her again and held her tight. And then finally, when she was dead, he threw her body in the trunk of the car and drove home. And then guess where he put her? Yep. (laughs) In the attic.
0: And they also said in that documentary that he had put her body under a mattress and left it there for three months and then put her in the attic. I'm like, mm-hmm. how in the world? And also like he lives with his family. Yeah. Are they just not ever, never, never home? Like, cause I mean, I'm sure they have jobs and stuff, but like if he's bringing home all these different women and they're staying for, because he's we know he killed eight women so they never left his home but he <laughs> he used the services of sex workers very often so there's a lot more women that would come cuz he always pretty much went to his house like and his room is upstairs so he had to go through the house yeah like are is his family never there so much that because i just can't imagine that he's bringing a woman home she's staying for like an hour and then leaving Right. And this is happening all the time. It's just, do they not notice people coming and going? Do they just not talk about it? Is it just like an understood? I don't know. It's just so weird that like he lives there with three other people. Well, and
1: not to mention the smell.
0: Like yeah. Did they ever say anything about the smell? I know.
1: We're going to find out later about that. Because e- I thought the same thing that you ladies are thinking. I was like, this is so weird. And he has he has a younger sister who's like in college. So can you imagine like being a, I don't know, 20, I'm, I'm guessing here, 22 years old and your brother's home and it smells like crap, Death. like dead people, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like dead people. And, uh, and his parents just seem to be pretty oblivious. And, and as we mentioned yeah. earlier, they later said, we had no idea. And I'm like, why, yeah. how? The cops kind of go into that. And there's probably a lot of psychology that goes into that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So back to Gina. So Richie, Gina's boyfriend, who happened to leave her in the middle of the night, he came back, couldn't find her. And so a week later, after Gina failed to show up, he goes to Gina's mother, Patricia Barone, to see if, hey, where's Gina? And so um, Patricia hadn't seen Gina, and she knew right away that something must have been wrong because Gina would never leave Poughkeepsie. So she reported her missing in December. Patricia gave a description of Gina and the eagle tattoo that she had on her back, and she also had a tattoo with the word POP, P-O-P, on her right arm. Lieutenant Bill Seagrass had just been appointed to head the City of Poughkeepsie Police Department Detective Division on January 3rd, 1997, after a 29-year career with 20 of those years as a patrol cop. He knew the area and the people, and his spidey senses told him that Wendy Myers and Gina Barone's disappearances Felt like more than a coincidence. Determined to find the perpetrator of these disappearances, they set up surveillance in the area and talked to other sex workers, but came up empty handed.
0: Another month passed and a new year rang in before 47 year old Kathleen Hurley disappeared. I mean, these are quick too. This is like mm-hmm. only a month, a month, a month, a month. Yeah. yeah. She was last seen on Main Street, which was a popular drag for the sex workers of Poughkeepsie. She was also a small white woman with brown hair. She had a tattoo on her left bicep that said CJ. Her disappearance was investigated, but they were unable to find her alive or dead. And they felt like her disappearance was related to the other women. And I also have to like give these detectives a lot of credit because. They pushed forward when the rest of the department was like, these are sex workers. Why are you even wasting your time? Like, and they were like, no, we want to find, we want to find what's going on. Like there's something happening Mm -hmm. and they treated them like people and Mm -hmm. yeah, which is what they should be treated like. But I mean, we see it so often that sex workers are just written off as nobody, trash, trash, yeah, I can't remember where I heard it, but they um they're often referred to as the less dead. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And it's basically the who gives a shit. Yeah, they don't like they don't count. Well, they interviewed some of the other sex workers in the area and one of them was like, "They don't care about us. They don't they don't give a shit about us. Yeah. Nobody's going to do anything." And I'm sure the two detectives were like, "Uh, excuse me, yes we are." I oh, know. No, I love them. They were them. working behind
1: the scenes, so it they also didn't want to put off um, the, whoever the serial killer, potential serial killer was. So they really weren't putting much information out there. So they, I, I read right. the same articles where people were like, what the hell? You guys don't care about us. And they are secretly working behind the scenes.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are now three cases of women that were all similar in appearance, all sex workers in the area, and they had all disappeared. The police reached out to the Neighborhood Recovery Unit that was described as a narcotic unit that had confidential informants, drug dealers, convicted criminals, prostitutes, and other street dwellers. And this is their their quote. (laughs) Uh, They reported back about any Johns that the women reported as being rough during sex. And the name Kendall Francois came up multiple times. City of Poughkeepsie police, town of Poughkeepsie police, New York State police, and the town of Lloyd police, which is where Wendy Myers was reported missing, were all on the case trying to figure out what was going on. They were pretty sure that the women were dead, but they had no bodies or evidence, and they were being pressured to be budget conscious, like we said, in regards to manpower. Wow. Uh, The community wasn't in fear as a whole. Because this was quote unquote only happening to the quote street people or street dwellers. So, again, this is like a thing where when society distances themselves from a type of crime or whatever, or a victim, and you're like, oh, well, that can't happen to me because I'm not a sex worker. Like, it can happen to you. Mm-hmm. Like, it can happen to anybody. This is a person who needs to be off the street because he's killing at this point likely killing people everybody's a people i don't i just don't understand viewing somebody as not well, worthy and how many times have we seen it where a serial killer is just ramping up and then the less likely they are to be captured the more emboldened they get mm-hmm. so exactly. then i don't want don't mean to say it this way but somebody who is easier to abduct and murder because there are people out on the streets looking for you know mm-hmm. looking for their next John I guess whatever then that that's not good enough so then they go into maybe abduction or you know like home invasion things like that it's like just because you're not their target yet doesn't mean you're not going to be so yeah because so many of them operate based on just opportunities so exactly. you happen to be a woman working late at night in a store by yourself or whatever and you're locking up and he's driving by you're at risk like it's yeah everybody's at risk it's sad police even put a wire on a sex worker named Katina Newmaster The detectives needed more evidence to prove or disprove that Francois was their guy. They told her not to get in Francois's car, though. Just talk to him. And uh, they said Katina, being Katina, was like, I'm fine. I'm smarter than that. I'm just doing my own thing. Mm -mm. She got in the car with him multiple times. She'd been helping the police with more than just Francois' case, and police knew her, so they were trying to keep an eye on her. In most places, sex workers would not have been looked for if they'd gone missing, which we mentioned. In March of 1997, 31-year-old Catherine Marsh, who once again matched Francois' type, was reported missing by her mother, who hadn't seen her since November 11th, 1996. Okay, what?
1: That's four months.
0: That is crazy that it takes that long. But I guess, I mean, I think, I think for some, some people too, it's like if they're not super close with their family or they're known to kind of go off the radar for a little bit, they're like, okay, I don't always hear from her. It might be a couple months, but you know, in there, there was a holiday that she definitely would have come around or called or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of raises red flags. Yeah, definitely. But four months does seem like a pretty big gap there for not seeing somebody or reporting them missing once they've been. I'd report you missing if I don't hear from you in about 40 minutes. Well, (laughs) because I never stop calling you. So if I'm not calling 16 times a day, there's something wrong. Yeah, you're dead. For sure.
3: LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
4: The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands, and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus, creator meetups, networking, and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. So, Catherine's clothes
0: and other personal belongings were still in her apartment, but since it had been months since she disappeared, the trail was cold. And of course, we know time is of the essence with these kinds of things. In April, the local authorities decided that it was time to call in the big guns and they contacted the FBI. But unfortunately, despite their interest in the case, the FBI's hands were tied and they couldn't help. They had to have a crime scene and currently that wasn't possible. They also tried to expand their search by accessing the National Crime Information Center database so they could see if their missing women were any of the unidentified DOAs From across the nation, they requested all the rap sheets for all the missing women to see if maybe they had been arrested elsewhere and they canvassed all the neighborhoods. They were taking the disappearances seriously. The FBI's lack of evidence of a crime didn't deter the local police. Typically, bodies and a crime scene were required for a task force to be created. But in this case, a task force could be created later in spite of that. One detective said that on the surface, these were missing persons cases. He said, we have no evidence of criminality, but they were convinced that this was more than that. Despite having Francois on their radar, the detectives were still slightly pulled away from him as a suspect because they assumed that they were looking for a white man. Statistically, it's more rare for an African-American man to be a serial killer, and it's even more rare for a serial killer to cross racial lines. Francois was a large African-American man killing white women. He also didn't fit many of the markers profilers attributed to serial killers. I feel like he does, though. I think so, too. Yeah. He's like a loner. He... Is very rough during sex. Yes. He's already choked people. We know he's been arrested for assault many times. Yes. He was in the damn military. What more do you need? Well, and he was bullied as a child. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. unless they don't know all that kind of stuff, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And he smells to high heaven. That's actually kind (laughs) of common too, right? Yeah. Exactly. Other than being bullied in middle school, like just about everyone else, he didn't have any known traumatic experiences. There were no significant head injuries, no known abuse. His parents were married and had good jobs, so they lived a middle-class life. So his dad was a factory worker and his mom was a registered nurse at Hudson River Psychiatric Hospital. Hmm. I would think that she would have had to bathe often
2: if she lived in that house.
0: You know, like, this is not the same thing. But one time when I lived with y'all, Andrew cooked fish. And it was like one of the first times ever he cooked a very, very, very smelly fish. And... My coat, for like two weeks after that, smelled like a fish. Yeah, and was like, everything this smells not. like it. Yeah. Yeah. So it adheres to your clothing. But yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Like you would think that. And people were saying that for like, for not blocks, but like houses down, you could smell yeah. this house. Right. Yep. Well, and also, if she's a registered nurse in a psychiatric hospital, are we not noticing some questionable Behaviors with her son, like yeah, Yeah. shouldn't she pick up on that? But she she might have blinders.
1: You know how sometimes you can have blinders for the people who you're closest to. That may, or for yourself, sometimes I think that that may be what happened here. But it really, I think, when we hear a little bit more about the condition of the house, I'm even more shocked that she was a registered nurse. Uh, Right. I'm not sure if she was working at the time, so we'd have to find out where this Hudson River Psychiatric Hospital is. So who knows.
0: Yeah, very true. So, as well, like all of that. Plus, he had no animal torture, or fire setting, or bedwetting in his history. Mm-hmm. None of the hallmarks of a serial killer. And during one of his arrests, Francois was even hooked up to a polygraph, which he passed. Which, of course, he passed because they all do. Like
2: that doesn't really <laughs> mean anything. Pass
0: them, yeah. yeah, because they're they're psychopaths, they're sociopaths, like whichever one they are. But they. They can figure out what answer you want to hear and they can do it with such confidence. Yeah, that's how they get people to come with them. Yeah, exactly. There wouldn't be any media coverage of these disappearances until the fall of 1997. Almost a year after Gina and Wendy disappeared, the Poughkeepsie Journal finally ran an article. Despite this, there was no new information.
1: So on October 9th, 1997, another woman went missing. 27-year-old Michelle Eason, she was reported missing by her family or something. She also fit the type of Francois' victims. She was five foot two and 115 pounds. Now, how have y'all ever stopped to think if you ever went missing and they put your weight on a a missing person's poster? I'm like, please don't do that. Just put my picture Mm, up there. They'll, They'll get the point. They don't need to know how much I weigh. And just be
0: like, uh, 5'2", extremely adorable. Like, (laughs) it is
1: none of her business how much she weighs. Yes, exactly. Just if you've seen this face, please report me missing. Please report it to authorities, okay? Yes. So meanwhile, in October of 1997, a 29-year-old by the name... So this is another missing woman. A 29-year-old by the name of Mary Healy Giacone's mother passes away. So Mary's father, who's a retired New York State corrections officer... He's trying to call Mary to be like, hey, I got some bad news. Your mom passed away. But he couldn't find her. So in November, Mary's father finally reported her missing since he hadn't heard from her. I mean, she didn't even know that her mom was dead.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Police, when they went to go find Mary, they found that she had last been seen alive, get this, in February of 1997. Her mom passed away in October. So that is just... That part right there made me really sad because yeah. there's a lot of people who go through this who don't have family connections and it's just really sad.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when police looked into it, Mary was five foot four and 110 pounds. So she basically fit the description of the other victims who also went missing.
0: Yeah. And she was in the area of the same, like that same area. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So the police were searching the Hudson River. They were deploying helicopters. They were questioning informants. They're interviewing hundreds of people, but they were still coming up with no bodies and no evidence. So where the heck could these women have gone, right? They're probably thinking they're stumped. So the police actually suspected a few different men from the area who were known sex offenders and reportedly enjoyed rough sex with sex workers. But Francois, he wasn't really high on the suspect list, albeit he was on the list. You know who else was on the list though? Hmm. Our boy, Richie. Remember Gina's boyfriend, Richie, the one who dropped her off at three o'clock in the morning? That the guy. boyfriend did it. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he was on the list because he had a sizable police record, including assault on women. So probably they're like, what the hell is going on here? So he hmm. was on the police's radar like, okay, mm, you don't seem so innocent to us. And remember, he didn't even report her missing to her mom until like a week later. So they were already kind of suspect of him. Right. So one man who was arrested back in June of 1997 for assaulting a woman was questioned and looked into, but he would end up being in police custody when the first three of the women vanished. So what a great alibi, right? To have like, you think I did it, but I was in jail. So mm, no, (laughs) it's like the alibi of all alibis. Yes. Exactly. And Richie was eventually cleared though. So while the detectives were able to cross off many of the men that they had originally suspected and was on their list and were on their list, the one person who stayed on the list was Kendall Francois. People in the community were doubtful that the police were actually working the disappearances, which is what we just talked about. And they assumed that the detectives were not looking for them because of their chosen profession. Lieutenant Segrist told the Albany Times Union, quote, these girls don't have set schedules. It took time for the families to realize that something was wrong. And then they even thought for a while that they might turn up, end quote. So basically, it's not that they aren't or weren't investigating, is that the women were living a lifestyle where they weren't seen often by their families, which is what Torella said earlier. And this made it hard for a family to realize that loved ones were even missing and that they should be concerned. Not to mention the public can't know everything that is going on in an investigation, especially when it uh, involves a serial killer. Mm -hmm. Finally, they had to try and get more information and possible evidence from Kendall Francois.
0: In January of 1998, they began surveillance on him and his house they found out his routine and where he frequents for some adult fun. He would often take his mom to work in the morning and then swing over to the downtown area and pick up a lady. So one morning after he dropped off his mom, the detectives pulled him over and casually asked him to come to the station. And he agreed and seemed completely like cool as a cucumber he yeah. was just like yeah okay fine I'll follow you no problem yeah, like, I don't have any big plans <laughs> so that's totally cool yeah and like nothing to worry about he didn't ask for a lawyer or anything they just he just went the detectives had specifically decorated the interview room with a murder wall Pepe Silvia style <laughs> Yeah. Who was Pepe Sylvia? <laughs> with uh, Francois' house circled, and they were hoping that this would rattle him, but he was calm and respectful while answering questions for a few hours. They didn't have anything to go on other than their suspicions and Francois's generally sketchy vibe and lifestyle. They brought up the accusation from one woman that claimed that Francois had attacked her with a knife once. And he was like, uh, "No, I did not attack her with a knife. It was a nail file. Okay, get it right." And then he's like, "You can come to my house and see it." Okay, but what did we learn from <laughs> Never Been Kissed? It's a weapon. Oh, remember when they she goes yep. through the detector? The oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah and yeah. he pulls it out and he's like, "What is this?" <laughs> That's a weapon. That's a weapon. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it definitely can be a weapon. Anything can.
1: Yeah, it's sharp.
0: Yeah, and like... Well, depending on
1: the nail file. Well, that's true.
0: (laughs) But for him to be like, no, I didn't attack her with a knife. That's ridiculous. (laughs) I attacked her with a nail file. It's like, okay, the (laughs) point is though that you attacked her, like not what, not specifically what you attacked her with. Yeah, that's not really the exact point we're super worried about, dude. But detectives were like, hell yes, we will come to your house because they didn't have enough evidence to get a search warrant. So... They were like, he's inviting us in. Like, we got to go. Manane was the only detective allowed in the house. He would not let anybody else come with him. Kendall took him to the bedroom. But on the way there, Manane had to carefully negotiate the terrain. He remarked that the house was absolutely disgusting. Mm -hmm. There were no doors on cabinets. There were dishes piled in the sinks. There were roaches. Maggots, Ugh. clothes everywhere, and it smelled god awful, but he was like, it's still not criminal. Should be. It, yeah, it, it's it, just um. disgusting. Manane did see the door to the basement and he really wanted to get down there. Now I have so, a question.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is a detective. He goes into the house where there's what, three plus dead bodies, and he says there's nothing criminal. I mean, what is Francois using to disguise the smell of dead bodies in his house? I know, I'm just shocked. I, I don't get it.
0: Yeah. You have to wonder, like, I mean, if there's just straight up maggots all over the floor, Blech. like, it, I can't imagine what that smells like. But I also, I'm just like absolutely mind blown that the rest of his family, like, you might have one person who lives in absolute filth but four people nobody's cleaning and like nobody's saying anything they're all just fine with it and they get up and go to work because it's a whole mess this is disgusting yeah like yeah this is like living in a in a dumpster like should have been condemned yeah but i do think though so let's say the detective went into a cleaner house and smelled the smell. Then right. you'd have like probable cause, right? I mean yeah. I would, I don't know how probable cause works really, but yeah. I would think that you'd be like, okay, this shit doesn't add up. But if right. you go into a house where it's like crawling with roaches and maggots, I think that you would be like makes sense. Yeah, exactly. the smell. <laughs> I would expect the house like this to smell this bad. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. It just Although, I mean yeah. we talked about it death smells different than rotten food. I'm sure. Right. Right. Yeah, we learned that in the Casey Anthony case. Because mm-hmm. her mom was like, smells like there's a been a dead body in the car. And then she's like, oh no, that was just an old pizza box. No, oh. bitch, it was not an old pizza box. Mm-hmm, God, mm-hmm, God. Mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Francois takes him to the bedroom, but he would not let Manet enter any other rooms. After Francois could not find the nail file in his room, he got agitated and decided it was time for the detective to leave. And Detective Manain was like, he starts like kind of freaking out. He's like, we got to go. And he's like raising his voice and just acting very weird. While they were on their way out, Manane had managed to get in front of Francois and tried to play dumb and started down the basement stairs. But he said Francois like physically grabbed him by the collar and told him that was not the way out. And he was like, that was really weird that he acted that way. Like, you know, most people, if you're in the house with them, they're just like, oh, you know, whoopsie, that's not the way to go or whatever. Like, we're going this way. But he kind of freaked out about it and physically grabbed him. So they leave and detectives still have nothing more to go on. If I was Minane,
1: I would be freaking the fuck out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to go to the basement with this big ass guy right behind me. Yeah, and
0: alone too. It's like uh-huh. nobody else is... I mean, maybe they're outside, but still... Oh. Yeah, too much can happen in the amount of time somebody needs to bust up in there. I don't know. Yeah. That's scary. So that same month, Francois was arrested for the assault of a different sex worker. So this guy is just batting a thousand, right? mean, yeah. like, <laughs> Not letting anything stop him. The woman he attacked was reluctant to make the report and press charges, but she did. She told the police that Francois had picked her up on Cannon Street in Poughkeepsie and taken her to his house. In the second floor bedroom, she and Francois got in a tiff over money and he punched her in the face and he punched her so hard that he knocked her on the bed and then he climbed on top of her. Jeez. Francois begins choking her and choked her so much that she was like, okay, fine, fine, fine. We'll have sex. Just, I mean, I'm sure she was like terrified, right? Yeah. And once he was done, he took her back to Cannon Street, which is kind of crazy to me. Like, I wonder what, it just has to be like, What, whatever, Way the breeze is blowing that day. Why he didn't? Not that I want her to die, but you know what I mean. Like, right, right? Yeah. Why not her? Why did he was? Why was he like? Yeah, I'll just take you back. No big deal. Yeah, yeah. It's that's very. Yeah, you wonder what his uh, criteria is or whatever. One hundred percent. Yeah. So after she filed her report, the police arrested Francois, and in May of 1998, he pleaded guilty to third degree assault, and this is a misdemeanor that got him 15 days in 15 jail. Fifteen days in what? jail. He. And this uh-uh. is not a first offense. <laughs> right. He violently attacks a woman. 15 he days in He raped her.
1: He raped mm-hmm. her. I mean, that, this is straight up rape. He, the only reason she contended to sex was for fear of her life. This is right. the definition of rape. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a felony. Uh-uh.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ooh, but I guess, crazy. I mean, they're I'm sure it's like a bigger fish at, to fry type of thing. Well, but they're looking at her as a sex well, worker. absolutely. And the court's just like, well... You asked for it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the attitude they have. Like, you asked for it. You're taking on a risky lifestyle, which, like, okay, yeah, it is risky, but but there are terms and conditions, and yeah. this guy completely shat all over that, and... Yeah, and nobody deserves, no matter what line of work you're in, nobody deserves to be in fear for their life by mm-hmm. the people that they're working with. No, like, exactly. Yeah. That really so, upset me. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, yeah, I understand that, Ugh. Just after he was released, he picked up right where he left off. Of course. Yeah, they always do. On June 12th, 1998, 51-year-old Sandra Jean French was reported missing from Dover, which was 20 miles east of Poughkeepsie. She was five feet and weighed 120 pounds. She had hazel eyes and dark hair, which is exactly like a carbon copy of Francois' type. (laughs) Then on June 15th, her car was found abandoned three blocks from Francois' house. One source said that Francois left her body lying in his Mickey Mouse comforter while he got dressed and went off to school. A Mickey Mouse Mm -hmm. comforter.
1: In a filthy house. Let's not forget that. Mm.
0: I just wonder, do they make Mickey Mouse anything in adult sizes? Because this man is big. Yeah. Um. Was half of him hanging out of that Mickey Mouse comforter? I know. Yeah, you would think that's like a twin at best. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean... I'm, I'm thinking about the important details of this case. Like, yeah. How <laughs> big like, was
2: the comforter?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> was he cold at night? It was the 90s. It's possible that they had adult size That's Mickey true. Mouse stuff, you know? That is true.
0: The aforementioned task force was created in July of 1998, and it involved two investigators from the city of Poughkeepsie. One detective was from the town of Poughkeepsie, and one investigator was from New York State Police and was commanded by Sergeant Michael Harkin from the city of Poughkeepsie. And it, this was not advertised to the public. A fellow sex workers, and this is what I was talking about earlier. One of us, uh, a fellow sex worker told a reporter on July 26th of 1998, she said, we're low lives. That's what it comes down to. People don't care that we're missing because they think we don't belong on the streets in the first place. It's not just the police, it's the community. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, she's not wrong in that assessment. Right. And I feel like what triple sucks about that attitude is there's a lot of reasons that women end up on the streets. Like, it's not just, it's not like they're sitting around as little girls and they're like, I want to be a sex worker when I grow up. Like, that's not mm-hmm. what's happening. There's so many reasons that they they end up and a lot of it is force and fear and, addiction and all that kind of stuff. But this attitude perpetuates it. Yeah, and obviously the members of the community are utilizing these services or they wouldn't be on the street in that area. So you're on one hand perpetuating it and using the services and paying for it. And then on the other hand, you're condemning these people and And saying that they're untouchables. Yeah, Yeah, like... But they were, it was fine for you to use their services, but well, God, we could do a whole episode on just that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The public wasn't aware of all of the steps the police and authorities were taking to solve these disappearances. They had been working on the case for 22 months with thousands of hours of
1: work. Well, a month after that, on August 26, 1998, detectives were doing a press release about the Sandra French case when their beepers started going off. Beepers, beepers. Yes. <laughs> I was going to stop and say, did y'all have beepers? <laughs> we did not. No, no, but
0: we did get hand-me-downs. <laughs> well, we didn't, I mean, our parents were very like, what the hell do you need that for? Like, yes, who are you going to exactly. be beeping? You know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but the funny thing is, I had one, I think it was middle school or high school. And and now thinking back to it, I'm like, oh my God, that's like what drug dealers had. But we, 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 we used to beep <laughs> each other all the time.
0: There yeah. codes for stuff. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Michelle um had one. And uh hey Michelle, I would beep her like all the time and it would be like, you know, emergency, call me and I'd be like, oh my God, um, a boy called me or something. You know, it's like yeah. stupid stuff. <laughs> it's like, what do you need to yes. beep somebody for in the eighth grade?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. I just I, I still can't believe my parents let me have one. But we all did in high school and or middle school. I can't quite right remember when. But yeah, super crazy. <laughs> I love it.
3: LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms
1: and conditions apply. So, of course, these police officers who, uh, you know, clearly should have, or detectives, actually, who clearly have a need for a beeper, um, their beepers start going off. Katina Newmaster's luck ran out. And so remember, Katina was the one who was not supposed to be getting in Francois's car. She was their informant, but she kept doing it. And so they had just spoken with her two days before. And now, surprise, surprise, she was missing. Mm. Katina had been getting into Kendall's car despite police warnings. And this time, she was never seen alive again. A few days later, on September 1st, 1998, they set up a roadblock to stop cars and hand out flyers about Katina's disappearance. They were near a gas station when they saw the one and only Kendall Francois pulling away. This is when, this is going to take us back to the beginning of the story, when the customer comes out to tell them that Christine Sala said she had just been attacked.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So now... That we've kind of brought us back full circle. We're going to talk about what happens next. So, after Francois was brought in, he actually admitted to attacking Christine. Then, police tell him that they have a search warrant and that they're heading to his house. Francois, at this point, knows the jig is up, man, and he asks to speak directly to the prosecutor. And he basically lays everything out to her and just tells her everything, which is strange that he did that. I mean, I guess he just figured, well, they're on their way with a search warrant. They're going to find all these bodies anyway. So let me just warn them. Maybe. No.
0: Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, it, it's just a no, 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 no. Okay. Yeah. But because <laughs> I mean, I guess technically if they'd gone and found the bodies, he could try to use some defense of like they... uh had a seizure or it was Mm -hmm. self-defense or something, but Mm -hmm. you're not going to get away with that with eight people.
1: Right. Mm -mm. Yeah. So at that point, he asks to see pictures of all the missing women that they're looking for. And when they bring him the photos, they actually said that he went through them as if he were going through family photos. So weird. Super weird. He would flip through them nonchalantly and see a girl he knew. And then he'd, put it to the side and say, yep, I killed her. Then he'd flip a couple pages. Yep, I killed her. Flip, flip, flip. Yep, I killed her. Flip, flip. I killed her. I mean, the police officer's jaws must have like dropped. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of that recent serial killer who who got caught and then died, Samuel Little.
2: Uh-huh. Remember, he uh-huh. would draw
1: them. I mean, he had like like photographic memory where he would draw his victims and they they would try to identify who they were. This kind of reminds me of him. I don't know about mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Patricia Barone, the mother of the missing Gina Barone, she told the Albany Times almost prophetically, quote, if they find one of them, they'll find all of them. I'm sure of that, end quote. And she would be right. Right. On September 2nd, 1998, by midnight, all of the investigative bodies involved in this case, remember all of them, that were Town of Poughkeepsie Police, City of Poughkeepsie Police, New York State Police, Town of Lloyd Police, as well as the District Attorney EMS Crime Scene Investigators, and eventually the media and neighbors, they descended upon the small two-story green colonial house at 99 Fulton Avenue that Paulette and McKinley Francois bought in the 70s. which. It makes, it's kind of sad because they bought that h- house in the 70s. I'm sure it was paid off by this point and they plan to live out all of their days and now Ugh. it is swarmed by police and neighbors. Well, and let's not forget the disgusting condition of the house itself.
0: Yeah, I wonder like when it got to that point, like you have to think that like they buy the house and they don't immediately fill it with
1: garbage. Yeah, mm-hmm. like it's just so weird how you like slip into that. I, don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, from what they describe the house, and I think it's coming up here in a, in a minute, Um, but it seems to me like they were hoarders. So mm-hmm. at what point did they start hoarding? I don't know, because they had been living there for close to 30 years by this point. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So detectives let McKinley, Paulette, and Kirsten know that they were going to enter the home and the family would have to leave the Francois family was taken to the police station for questioning. Of course, people probably thought they have to know. So while it would seem like hiding at least eight bodies in a two-story house, and it wasn't that big, I saw a picture of it. Mm -mm. You would think that that would be pretty obvious. And like you'd walk in and be like, yep, there's bodies in here. Well, the Francois house was in no way, I think you said this earlier, was not that straightforward. The team took pictures that night, but they were forced to put the investigation on hold until daylight. Like Manain saw in his previous visit, the Francois house was nasty, making it very difficult to maneuver safely.
0: It was reported once again that the house was absolutely chock full of garbage. It was on every inch of the floor along with the furniture. Okay, like Friends. Yeah. Margo, do you watch Friends? Have you watched Friends? Yes. When Ross dates that, well... By all accounts, she's beautiful. I don't love that actress, but yeah. Not that she's <laughs> not beautiful, but I don't love her. But anyway, uh, and he goes to her house or her apartment, and it's just disgusting. And she's like uh-huh. got bologna and chocolate syrup and all the things on her couch. And yeah. That's yeah, he's like, know. they're like making out on the couch and his hand like dips into something and he pulls it up and it's like chocolate yogurt. Syrup or yeah. Chocolate syrup. dripping <laughs> oh, off of it. And it's like, Ugh. So disgusting. <laughs> so yeah.
1: gross. Yes. Mm-mm. I'd be like, bye. Yeah, <laughs>
0: exactly. and she didn't want to go to his apartment because it had a weird smell. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 He's like, what is it, soap? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, what is it, soap? Clorox? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. It was noted that clothes were also piled up and covering the floor as well. They had sheets on the windows instead of curtains, and the kitchen was covered in rotting food, old mm. newspapers, broken furniture, and still more garbage. It was reported that there were syringes laying out, maggots in the sinks, and that Kirsten slept right below maggot casings that were dropping from the ceiling. Uh, Is I it can't. terrible that the worst part, like I, I, I don't like any of it, make that clear. Right. The maggots were the part where I was like, like, I know. I can't. Oh. Inside your house, like, I've only had maggots like, I've seen them in our outside garbage can like twice. Oh, for food. Yeah, and I've like almost died about it. I mean, it's yeah. disgusting and it's outside wow. and I'm like, oh my God, what do we do about this? But <laughs> if we had maggots in our house, I'd fucking uh-uh. move. Yeah, like, there is no yeah. reason to stay. I mean, it is just Burn disgusting. Burn the house down. <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly, Exactly. start over. Ew. According to one article, one of the detectives noted that in all the years he'd been a detective, he had never seen anything like the Francois house and the quote-unquote wretched living conditions. The total crime scene investigation would end up taking almost a month because there's just so much shit in the well, house. And it reminds me of uh, Deal Armstrong, uh huh, Margie. Yeah, I was thinking about that because she and Ken Barnes and and who was the other all Bill, of them, Bill All of them yeah. were hoarders, and they had garbage everywhere. Like mm-hmm. it's crazy. With all the trash and rot, it's not surprising that the smell of dead bodies was masked by the overall stench of the house. Whenever his parents would mention the smell of the bodies, Francois would tell them that there was a dead raccoon that he couldn't find. But like, how are they differentiating between like the normal bad smell? Cuz there's maggots everywhere. Like there's got <laughs> yeah. to be a horrible smell if you've got maggots all over your house and then you're like it's
1: smelling a little worse than usual. What is that? Yeah. Uh, and it's eight bodies. Like, I just don't, I just, I still, I I don't, I don't get it. Eight bodies. Yeah. Mm-mm. And they're
0: like in various stages of decomposition. It's. Uh, it's
1: insane. Well, and
0: most of the bodies or at least three that we know of are in the attic, right? Right. It gets hot as hell in an attic. They are not covered with dirt or anything. They're right. just up there, possibly under mattresses or whatever. But it's like, There's nothing to stifle that smell. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The authorities entering the house had to gear up in suits and masks, and I do not blame them Mm -hmm. one bit. Mm -hmm. That's a day that I'd be like, I think I'm going to be sick. Yeah. I I think my (laughs) mom's calling me. I got to go. I think
1: I have COVID. Now we can. I think I have COVID. Exactly. I've been exposed. Bye. Yeah, uh, we're going to all
0: be in masks anyway. You'll be fine.
1: Right. I know. There was actually one guy who walked in with like his regular boots. And after the investigation, he ended up tossing his boots because they were just completely ruined by the grudge and nastiness. Uh, gross. There is no Ugh. bringing those back. No. No.
0: no. Yeah. My and God. magic eraser. Nope. Yeah. The one, one of the detectives was like, it was so disgusting that if you leaned against the wall, you came away with like a film on you. Oh, it was just no. like gunk everywhere. Oh, no. So gross. The investigation found three bodies wrapped in plastic in the attic by 3 p.m. It appeared that he had begun to dismember them. The district attorney, William Grady, told the throng of media that showed up, based on what the suspect told us, the eight bodies are inside that house. And they were. The fourth body was found in a kiddie waiting pool. Like one of those little plastic ones you get at like Dollar General or Walmart that the you GD can roll to your or. car. Yeah, and the fifth body in in the attic was in a can.
1: Must be like a like a trash can, like a big one, maybe. I don't know. Yeah,
0: well, like bodies, a barrel. Yeah, maybe. yeah, something like that. And I believe that was the one that they said was like in such a state of decomposition. And this is what they said. I'm not trying to be gross, but they said that it was like a square of, oh God, remains, remains, yeah, and Uh, uh. the smell was horrible, yeah, it's just awful. The bodies were covered in clothes and blankets, and it took detectives and crime scene people days to find all eight bodies in a two-story house. Jeez. One of the investigators told a newspaper on September 3rd, Quote, it was a nightmare when cops went to the green aluminum sided house at 99 Fulton Avenue. They were nearly bowled over by the stench of rotting flesh, end quote, which that's is just, just so, saying. yeah, so mind blowing. Like, how did the family not pass right out? Like, no, mm-hmm. it is honestly amazing what a person can get used to. Yeah, I guess that's true because I've been around some people not that bad. And I know that it's not the same some people that I'm like, they don't bathe regularly and they don't seem to notice. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Special x-rays were used to scan the walls and floors of the house to see if Francois had hidden bodies in there as well. Patricia Barone, Gina's mother, came to the house as a bystander to watch as eight bodies were removed from the house. One of them was her daughter. She told the New York Times, quote, In my head, I'd come to terms with it. I had a feeling she was gone All this time, I always felt if when the good Lord thought I was ready to hear it, I'd hear it, end quote. Mm, So sad. I cannot imagine as a mother, like, Mm -mm. I don't know. Mm -mm. Finally, on September 5th, they'd found all eight women's bodies, five in the attic, and the three most recent were in the crawl space. It took three days to carefully remove the bodies from the house. The first to be identified was Katina Newmaster, then Gina Barone. Sandra Jean French, Catherine Marsh, Wendy Myers, Kathleen Hurley, and finally, Mary Giacone. However, while they had expected to find the body of Michelle Eason, they didn't and instead found the body of 34-year-old Audrey Puglisi. From New Rochelle, she had never been reported missing. Michelle Eason, the only... African American victim was never found. She really didn't fit Francois's type. And since the rest of the bodies were in the house, it's thought that she maybe wasn't one of his victims.
1: That's a little bit confusing. So did he did he confess to it or not? Like I, I couldn't find it, but it's like weird. I'm like, did he confess to it or yeah, not? Yeah, I don't I don't
0: feel like he did. I think they just lumped her in because kid. she was in the yeah. same area, but in probably same. I mean, she disappeared, like, uh, by all accounts, except for the fact that she didn't fit his type. Yeah. uh, It seems like it would be. And I don't know, sometimes, not to say that this is, I don't know, it always makes me feel kind of bad talking about it this way, but for documentaries and cases, sometimes to make it a little bit more, like, quote-unquote salacious, they throw in, like, a red herring or something. Uh Oh, yeah. Maybe this is it.
1: Yeah. That's possible. Yep, that sounds right. Yep.
0: On Wednesday, September 9th, Kendall Francois entered a plea of not guilty. <laughs> I cannot <laughs> believe the gall of this man. He's like, didn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not me. Yeah. The families of the victims were fucking pissed. The courtroom busted out in yelling, crying and screaming. One mother screamed, he killed my daughter. Under general circumstances, the people causing the commotion would have been escorted out of the courtroom. However, Judge Thomas Dolan allowed them to stay. Well, that's nice. Yeah. I mean, can you blame them? Yeah, exactly. I
1: don't know how I'd react.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, God, I don't, I think a lot of times when we talk about stuff like that, we're like, well, we can't really say what we would do. I think I would have been on the news. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm like, um, yep. shit. Like, especially to sit there and watch him say "not guilty." Yeah. Like, yeah, somebody's getting their ass beat. It's just so strange to me, though, that he's like, there was a time when he was interrogated or questioned. He was like, "All right, you guys got me." And then when they're like, "Do you? Do you want to keep on saying you did this?" and he's like, "Nope, I didn't do it." Yeah.
1: So there's a new show on TV. I don't know if you, if you ladies have time to watch TV, but it's called Chaos in Court. And it's about cases just like this where there's like someone who killed a, you know, a family or whatever. And then the other families are in the audience and they literally just leap over, over the bar and just punch the person or try oh, to get shit. there or whatever. It's super good. If you haven't watched it, you have to watch. It's literally I, I like- don't...
0: Well, I feel like Hulu is trying to make me watch it because I feel like it's one of those things that's like, it's always the top thing. Like <laughs> you, we think you would like this,
1: and I need to watch it's it. So good, I it's know. So good. Right. you have to watch it, and it's like just little snippets. So it, in one episode, they'll, they'll discuss like six cases where people went crazy in court, and it's it's just oh. so good because it kind of it kind of brings everything back into realization that. There's family members who are affected by these people's yeah. crimes. And sometimes we just kind of are like, okay, well, life goes on. Yeah, life goes on. But the whole court mar- the whole court process takes forever. And these mm-hmm. family members are going to court every single day. And like you said, they're literally sitting there knowing that's the murderer. And they're like, nope, didn't do it. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really good show. You should check it out and then let me know what you think. Yeah, yeah, that
0: sounds really good. And like also, you know, with the families going through everything that they're going through, I always think about this like, whatever Mm -hmm. sentence the murderer gets, you know, for some people, they only get 10 years, six years, whatever, 25 years, whatever it is. Their family is serving a life sentence. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them, their friends, their loved ones, like they have to live the entire rest of their lives without these people that they love. And all for, for what? For this guy, because he said somebody was like, I feel like the way he talked about Gina when he was like, well, she started complaining and annoyed me. It's like, so you think so fucking highly of yourself that her complaining, she deserves to die because she's getting on your nerves. Like, well, it kind of reminds me it's not the same because it's not sexually motivated, but Richard Kuklinski, Mm. the Iceman, and he was an enforcer for the mob or whatever he had that mentality where if somebody dared to cross him and he thought of them as like flies on him, you know, just swatting them away. He's like, ew, they annoyed me. So I was like, well, guess you're going to die today. Yeah. I mean, just the, the absolute selfishness of these people. And for somebody like Kendall, who I think got sexual pleasure from killing people, that always, I don't know, it, pisses me off so much because like in what world is your ability to get off worth somebody losing their life like who gives a shit yeah it's so ridiculous like <sighs> so ridiculous it's so annoying and i also think that the show that you're talking about the chaos in court i love the fact that it brings the case the importance of the case back to the families and the victims Because a lot of times they get lost in it. And I feel like we, it's not fair, but it's kind of normal. We not glorify killers, but we get so focused on them and why they did it and all this stuff. But I feel like that kind of show, I love that they're doing that because they're like, you know what? It's not about them. It's about the the loss that these people have lived through. It's really sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Kendall Francois made no more confessions and gave no more information after his indictment. His parents pleaded for their privacy from the media and neighbors saying through their attorney, quote, we find ourselves plagued by unimaginable circumstances. Our youngest son is suspected of committing grave offenses from which his life hangs in the balance. We have virtually lost everything, been dispossessed of our home and cast into the street with only the clothes on our backs. The family requests that under these extraordinary circumstances, the public and media respect the only two items we have now, our privacy and personal
1: respect, end quote. Mm.
0: The Francois family moved far away from Poughkeepsie in the aftermath.
1: Kendall Francois was back in court on October 13th, 1998, where he was formally charged with eight counts of first degree murder and eight counts of second degree murder and one count of attempted assault for Christine Sala, the one that got away. There are two versions reported of the sentencing. The first version, which is the most reported in articles, was that in New York State, a suspect being charged with first-degree murder, including serial murder, could receive the death penalty, or at least the death penalty was on the table. But this could only be imposed by a jury and confirmed by a judge. And... Francois wasn't willing to risk it. New York state law states that prosecutors have 120 days from the indictment to decide if they're going to pursue the death penalty. And so I was researching this just a little bit more because I was like, wait, I don't get it. So what, what that gives the, the prosecutor's time is to look for aggravating evidence or any type of mitigating evidence to decide whether they want to pursue a death penalty or not. Okay. So once they make that decision, they have to inform the defense. So before they could announce that they were, in this particular case, before they could announce that they were going for the death penalty, so before that 120 days was up, Francois, he tried to pull a fast one and plead guilty on December 23rd. So you know the prosecution was like, oh, hell no, (laughs) you're crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they were like, wait, that's not fair. This means now that the death penalty is no longer on the table since he decided to plead guilty. And by pleading guilty, he wasn't going to be convicted by a jury. So Judge Dolan was not happy about this. He didn't think it was fair um, that the prosecution didn't have their full 120 days to make that decision. And so in February of 1999, he ruled that pleading guilty before the 120 days runs basically is not allowed. You can't skirt the death penalty by pleading guilty. But uh, Judge Nolan's ruling, so I was, I was a little bit confused because I went back and read the, um, the appellate case and I'm, I believe the appellate case actually confirmed that the defendant does have to wait 120 days before being allowed to plead guilty. So I'm just hmm. gonna leave it at that because it gets a little bit confusing from there. But so that was the first version. The first version is that he pled guilty, therefore avoiding the death penalty. In the second version from the mouths of the detectives in a documentary that we watched, They said that there was a plea deal that was made between Francois, whereas he could plead guilty and receive life without parole instead of the death penalty. So in this version, it made it sound as though Francois had somehow grown a conscious, right? First, he was saying he's not guilty. Now he's saying he's guilty. And he was doing this in essence to spare the families, the added pain, as I mentioned earlier, of having to go to trial every single day, you Mm -hmm. know?
0: Yeah, and then you've got appeals that they have to go through if he's convicted and all
1: the things. Yeah. Exactly. So this deal would also remove the death penalty possibility from, like you said, appeals. So Patricia Barone said that she never wanted to see the man again. And prosecutors told her if they didn't offer this deal, she'd have to see him in court and he'd have appeals after appeals where she'd have to come and see him in court. So if they offered the plea, it would be done. It would be like a done deal. And Patricia thought about it and she said she was happy with the deal so that she could just kind of never have to see him again and put this behind her. When families gave their victim impact statements, Francois had the balls to actually giggle in court. I repeat, he giggled. I...
0: I don't know how people did not come across the table. Yeah, and, I was going to say, that's the moment. Yeah. When. Right there. Yeah. yeah. It's, that's horrific. I, I wonder if the judge like said anything to him or was like, if you do that again, I'm going to put you in contempt of court or something. I mean, I guess there's not mm-hmm. a whole lot you can do. He's going to serve life. I feel like that's when, as a judge, you should be able to be like, all right, hang him. Yeah. All yeah. yeah. right, hang him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just, oh, that's so awful. Yep. During the statements, Christine Sala told Francois and the court, if I had the chance, I'd cut you up into little bitty pieces. I hope they kill you in prison.
1: Girl. (laughs) Blamer. Snaps for her, right? Exactly, yes. (laughs) Why don't you tell them how you really feel?
0: Right. (laughs) Sandra Jean, French's mother, Heidi Kramer, said, I would like to see you die eight times over. On August 11th, 2000, Kendall Francois was sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole and was placed in Attica Correctional Facility. According to the officers at the prison, he was an average prisoner. They said he's been no problem. He gets along with other inmates and does go outside into the yard on occasion. Francois spent time in prison talking to a journalist who turned into an author. Claudia Rowe had previously worked for the New York Times and developed a professional relationship with Francois. They exchanged letters and phone calls, and she came to visit him over the course of about four years. She would use these correspondences to write a book called The Spider and the Fly, A Reporter, A Serial Killer, and the Meaning of Murder. He would tell Roe, killing seemed easier than getting into a relationship. What a crock of shit. Are those the only two options? Right. Like, well, I can't get into a relationship, so I guess I have to kill people. Right. Yeah, no, there's the third option there, sir. He also gloated that if he hadn't confessed, quote, I could have kept going, it would have gone on and gone on and they never would have found a thing, end quote. Not true. They were onto him so hard. They just needed a little more evidence. And you're going to fuck up, dude. Like, yeah. Yeah. A Poughkeepsie police officer she interviewed said the same thing. So when asked why he even confessed if he was so untouchable, Francois said, it just came to me when I was sitting there by myself. That doesn't mean anything. No. And he wasn't untouchable by that point. They had gotten a search warrant. Because he attacked another person. So they were going to find the bodies. That's, Mm -hmm. he was caught. Whatever. On her final meeting with Francois, he told her, I was thinking, I want to throw you down on this table and fuck your brains out. I, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Like, and I heard, I heard an interview with her a while ago, and she said that at first she thought that, you know, she's like, I know that he's a serial killer. I know that he can manipulate people and, you know, I'm not going to let him do that to me and all this stuff. And she found out through, like, that's why she ended up calling it the spider and the fly, because she's like, I I still got kind of like trapped in that web and he kind of had me under that spell. I was still pray for him. Like he, you know, had he been able to, he would have done something to me. Like, he just, that's what he wants to do. Terrifying. Yeah. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your viewpoint, in September of 2014, after serving just 16 years, the then 43 year old Kendall Francois died in prison, reportedly of natural causes, or some reports have uh, listed cancer as the cause of death. But, you know, if you're somebody who's like, I want him to, be in prison for a super duper long time, then you know that's kind of cut short. But that's the case.
2: It hmm. is crazy. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times in these kinds
0: of cases, like I guess depending like what we said about where you where you stand on it, you don't get much closure, but you don't get justice with it because it's like, wow, he literally. Lived 16 years, but I don't think it didn't seem like he was that upset about being in prison. I mean, he seemed pretty content yeah. with it, yeah, other that's than true. the lack of killing. But yeah, and he probably actually had to shower, and there's no maggots, probably. I would get the hope, yeah, yeah, Mrs. Is maggots, <laughs> Mrs. Is maggots, maybe they were like pets. I don't know, I don't like it, yeah, yuck, yeah. Um, Margo, tell people where they can find your show
1: and you. Awesome. (laughs) Okay. Um, So the show is called Military Murder and you can find it on your favorite podcast platform. So wherever you listen to Killer Queens, just put in Military Murder and you can find me there and you can subscribe and like and listen. Also, you can find me on Instagram. Instagram is where I'm the most active on social media at Military Murder Podcast. And you can also find the show on Facebook. You can find my Facebook page at Military True Crime. So just head on over there and we can chat. You can send me a message. I also opened up my my show to recommendations from listeners. Uh, So I do a lot of those as well. So yeah, just come and find me. I love chatting. And uh, even though it's based on Military True Crime, it was just a way to kind of do a niche true crime show, um, but I cover cases that everyone would be interested in because I cover um, serial killers that were, you know, had a military background, like the one that we covered today. And then just overall regular cases that people are aware of. So I covered, you know, BTK, I covered Vanessa Guillen's disappearance and a whole bunch of other um, crazy cases that are kind of current.
0: Love it. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, definitely check her out, check the show out and subscribe. And uh... Thank you so much for yes, coming on. Awesome. It was the best. Yeah, this was so awesome. And um, thanks for listening, uh, friends. And we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Okay, you guys. We have got some new patrons to say hey, girl. Thanks to this week. Hey, girl. Thanks to Angela Ruffelli. Alexis Kelton. Nicole Howell. Laura Uzinski. Natasha Brentrup, Teresa Reeves, and we hope you are doing so well, girl. We yes. love you hanging yes. there. Sarah Wetmore, Shelby S., Emily Jackson, Mary Tyler Moore. I know. When I saw that come <laughs> in, I was like, Mary Tyler Moore, oh my God. Uh, Christina Munoz, Tammy Lee Jacobson, Stacey Granito, Heather, Belinda Dunn, Shannon West, Tambor Pillay, Megan Woods, Shayna Guevara, and Victoria E. Luca. Thank you so much, you guys. We love you. We love you so much. We cannot do this without you. We are obsessed with you, but not in a weird way. Thank you. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye.
4: Passes from £89. Book yours now at London.com
2: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.